The Bible is so full of mystery, no one can claim to know it with certainty. Okay? Now, what are the implications of this statement? What are the implications of this statement? What, why would somebody say something like this? To discredit the authority of the Bible. To discredit the authority of the Bible. Now, how, would they, how, how does this statement discredit the authority of the Bible? They're getting at whether or not um, it is correct in what it says. Okay, whether or not it's correct. Okay. This is kind of, it's an interesting attack. Is I mean, you're right on, right? That's exactly what they're doing. But it's a very interesting way of doing it. They also don't want to know it. Okay. If they can't know for certain. They're not. So they're just discounting that they'll even try. Yeah. So why even try? Oh, okay. Right. Since it was they're trying, the statement's somewhat so full of mystery. It's almost like trying to discount all the authority, but still give it some. It's, it could be wonder, you know. Yeah. It'd be good for you, you know. Yeah. No, that's a good point. It makes God seem distant. I think that's uh, yeah. It makes God seem distant, like mystery, like he wrote this, but doesn't really want you to understand it. But also, it's kind of like, it kind of attacks it in a way. Um, okay. I don't know, whenever I first heard the, the word, it, I, I didn't um, think it as an attack at first, but then I read it again, and I was like, oh, yeah, I uh -huh. see that. Yeah. But basically, I think it treats God as as being too mysterious to be dealt with, too mysterious for okay. us to have a relationship with. Yeah, overemphasizes transcendence. Yeah, that's good. Other thoughts? These are all great insights, by the way. Someone might also say that if there's, you know, a truth from it that would maybe conflict with a lifestyle or something that they want to believe, and so, mm. you know, if we say it's too mysterious to know the certainty, we don't know for sure, you know, that that, because yeah. it's so full of mystery. We don't know for sure that it really means that okay. for my life. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Do you guys hear that? That it there's something that the Bible teaches against that you want to do. You can just say, well, you know, the Bible's just so mysterious. We can't really know for sure. Lindsay, you're going to say something. It <clears throat> kind of sets up the word mystery and certainty to be, like, antithetical to one another. Okay. Which is interesting because, like, as we're studying Ephesians, chapter 3 actually sets it up that we can know, like, the mysteries that are hidden in Christ. Okay. Which is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Other thoughts? And it kind of seems to make paint paint all knowledge like with the same brush, like that the Bible can have some things that are mysterious within them, and it can have some certainty. But this seems to say, well, if it's all if it's all mystery, it means there's no certainty. Yeah. And and if it's all certainty, then there can't be any mystery. So it's kind of a okay. bottom us. No, that's good. There's, we got two up here. Maybe you don't want it. Yeah, there's two right here. There's a splash zone right here. There's always seats in the front. Okay, other thoughts on this? I think one thing, this is like a giant uh, leveler. Like, you can have somebody who has a PhD who understands Greek and Hebrew and all that stuff, and, and then somebody just reads the Bible to get what they want out of it, and they both are the same. Does that make sense? It kind of kills expertise. 
So I say this because this is kind of the spirit of our age. When people you know, don't like what is said, they want to be complimentary about the Bible. But remember, the, the word, you know, the Bible is really revelation. And the point of revelation is to reveal, right? And to reveal who? God. God, right? So you kind of get into, we're going to start off on the, the doctrine of perspicuity or the clarity of Scripture. And so if the purpose of the Bible is to reveal God, can it do so? Is it equipped to do so? And there is kind of um, a sense where, yes, the Bible is full of mystery, and yes, the Bible is transcendent. But can God reveal true things about himself? Okay, so uh, the definition, I'm quoting from Wayne Grudem here, uh, the clarity of scripture means that the Bible is written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood by all who read it seeking God's help and being willing to follow it, okay? So you can know and understand scripture. The point of scripture is not to conceal God, but to reveal God. Okay, so let's look at uh, Deuteronomy um, 6, 6 through 7. I have a volunteer to read that. All right, Andrew, go for it. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Okay, so what's the general command of this passage? Should be continuously repeating, memorizing, you know, mm-hmm. Being confused with the word everywhere you go. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it should be on your heart, but then what's the next phase beyond that? Teach. Teach. And who are the objects of the teaching? Your sons. Your sons, right? Your, Your children, right? So how would this support the clarity of Scripture? Children can understand it. Yeah, children can understand it. Right? Well, it's teachable. It's transferable, right? You can understand it well enough to impart it to others. Right? Not a lot of mystery there. Yeah, children can understand it. Um, let's go to another passage. Uh, Psalm 19.7. Somebody want to read that for me? Okay. Now, what does the term simple imply about the audience? Uneducated. Not educated? Mm-hmm. Ordinary people. Ordinary. I'm a simple kind of man. Right? Now, how does Scripture's impact on the symbol affirm its clarity? Even the symbol can comprehend it. Yeah, there's not a lot of mystery to it. Like, let's pick one of the commandments. You shall not murder. Is that self-explanatory? You shall not lie. Do you kind of know what a lie? I mean, do you know what I'm saying? Like, when you just look at these commandments, right, an action is prescribed, 
and obedience is implied. And so these commandments of the Lord is just very clear, right? It's not like this super complex contractual law that you need a lawyer to understand. Looks like there's, do we have a, Jackie? Is who? Tina? I don't think so, sorry. All right. We had a baby announcement, somebody who said that. All right. Yeah. Yeah, and so that's one thing. Like when people kind of give this, sometimes it's just helpful to read the Ten Commandments. Like, what does that even mean, right? It's pretty self explanatory, more so than, you know, and there are some complex parts of Scripture, right, with a lot of mystery when it talks about, let's say, prophecy. Um, but there's a lot of really simple parts that anybody can understand. And then, um, how about Matthew 21, 42? Somebody want to read that one? Volunteer? Yeah. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it's marvelous. It is marvelous in our eyes. Okay. So did the fact that these scriptures were written centuries before in a different cultural context excuse the audience from excuse the audience for their misunderstanding why or why not what do you think Jesus is quoting maybe a 700 year old text What do you think? I think the obvious answer is they're not excused, right? But what are the implications of this passage and this statement on the clarity of Scripture? Yeah. It shows that it's timeless. It's timeless, yeah. You guys should know better, right? He doesn't excuse them because that was written. It's an ancient book. is no excuse for their misunderstanding. Does that make sense? So this kind of brings up another question. If the scripture is so clear, right, why do some people misunderstand it? What do you think? If the scripture is so clear, why do some people misunderstand it? What do you think? People want to. Go ahead. We got you. Okay, Cole, thank you. Go ahead. Cole. Oh, uh, I think people want to skew it to their own ambitions and their own desires. Okay. The word. Sometimes we have a, an agenda there. Yeah, Keith? Is it choice is one Okay. Yeah, and sometimes it is a choice, right? Some people read in their own agenda, so that's one explanation. Are there others? Okay, Liana? <clears throat> Some of it could be like a lack of a solid biblical background, and they just haven't learned yet, and they've been taught wrong. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. I just, yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, the thing about my own kids, and, you know, sometimes I tell them something that seems clear, and they go do it, and, oh, no, that's not what I, like, it's just, they just didn't understand uh -huh. what I said, and so, it's, we have to, we go back and say, well, what were was the words that I used, was there something unclear about that, or was they, what, what caused the misunderstanding? Yeah. Jason, we're going to say something? Oh, just kind of along the same lines, just 
simple human error. I mean, yeah. we can have that even like in our Friday morning Bible study. I'll read something and then one of my fellow brothers will say it and be like, oh, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. what I get it. Okay. Yeah. And I think I kind of have like a two point outline here. They're making affirmations where the scriptures are silent. Sometimes uh, the scripture takes you so far, but beyond that, right, there's some speculation. Kind of remember the, when we talk about the basics of theology, how there's some doctrines, you know, we have some doctrines where this is where the scripture speaks, and then we have other doctrines where this is where the scripture speaks, but then there's some speculation, right? So sometimes you can have, you know, make some errors in that cat part of that. Okay, pretend it's colored. <laughs> I just touched it and felt black. Um, yeah, so I think sometimes it's just kind of recognizing that when there's a lot of speculation to kind of build a doctrine, there's a lot of room for error um, because of the human element in kind of forming those theological conclusions. Does that make sense? But then there are some passages like do not murder. Right? We know murder is wrong because it says it clearly. Okay? And then sometimes people just misinterpret the word. Um, they don't pay attention to the, uh, the, larger, the larger context or meaning of, of the passage. Now, does the misinterpretation of the word and people disagreeing about the meaning of scripture um, necessarily mean that it's not clear? Yeah, why not? Because we are limited human beings. Yeah. We're limited in our abilities. Yeah. It's not the scripture's fault, it's our fault, right? And so this is kind of when, when we're talking about bibliology and, the, um, and just the doctrine of scripture, uh, one thing that it kind of runs into conflict with is the Roman Catholic Church. Right, the, you have some people who grew up Catholic, I know you did Floyd, right? Where the Roman Catholic Church basically teaches that the Bible is correct insofar as it's correctly interpreted by the Roman Catholic Church and its magisterial uh, teachings. And so when you look at um, a lot of what I'm kind of building towards, you know, that the scripture testifies to its own truthfulness, it is clear, it's self-evident, um, kind of divorces the need for a church to interpret it for a believer. Does that make sense? But one of the doctrines that they use to really support why you need a, a magisterial authority is uh, the canon of scripture. Do you guys know what I mean by the canon? Yeah, the canon is the official list of books to be included in the Bible. Miranda, you asked about this last week, and I made you wait a week, so patience will pay off, right? Now, if you were to compare, um, if you grew up with the Catholic Bible, you will notice that there's some extra books in it. Okay, do you guys? Sirach, Wisdom, Tobit, First and Second Maccabees, am I missing any? Okay, those, those books are called uh, the Apocrypha, okay? And you will find those in the Catholic Bible, but you won't find that in our Bible. And so whenever you talk to somebody who is uh, a Roman Catholic apologist, uh, they will say that it's wrong to believe in the authority of Scripture, sola scriptura, by itself, because you need a church to define what is the Scripture to begin with. 
Okay? How would you respond to that argument? You would not have the Bible apart from the church. Therefore, if the Bible was begotten by the church, the church should have a level of authority over the Bible. You guys understand that argument? It's, it's probably the best one that they have, to be honest. Well, the scriptures were in authority prior to the, the church's beginning. Mm -hmm. There was scripture that was in authority over okay. God's people. Yeah, so it predates the church. That's good. And even in the New Testament, in Ephesians, says Christ is the head of the church. So, like, Christ's word reigned mm -hmm. over the church and is the authority mm -hmm. over it, not vice versa. Okay. Yeah, and what they would probably say to that is Christ is the head of the church, and Christ appointed the Pope to be head of the church. And they're still over Scripture. We had to look at and read the Scripture, and the Scripture defined itself through the uh, study of it. So it's not like it's yeah. outside of that. So what, and that's a very interesting point. So the Scripture basically <coughs> defines itself. The Scripture points to its own authority. Okay, I think that's definitely the right track. Okay, and we could say that when it comes to Scripture being its own authority. But does Scripture define which books are in the Bible? Does that make sense? You're going to say something? Well, partially. I mean, the argument is flawed because the, the idea that you needed humans to accomplish something, and therefore humans have authority over that thing, mm -hmm. right? We needed humans to write the Bible too. Like God chose to use humans to write the Bible, but mm -hmm. humans do not have authority over God's word. Yeah. God has authority over his own word. And we would all say that, and scripture claims that mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit carried them along. Mm -hmm. So the notion that because there had to be some people who copied a text, passed around a text, and eventually mm -hmm. um, a consensus arose among humans, and therefore this particular institution called the Roman Catholic Church as it exists today mm -hmm. has interpretive authority over that, there's a huge logical leap to yeah. get from the one to the other. Humans were necessary and they happened to be part of what was called at that time a church. Therefore, this particular body has authority over um, yeah. everything that they came up with. Yeah, so what you're doing is really appealing to a, a sense of ultimate authority, right? So on one hand, you have, you know, the Bible is authoritative because the Bible teaches that it's authoritative, right? Then you have another circular argument, which is the church is authoritative because the Bible, and then put a parenthesis here, when properly interpreted by the church, right? Says that it's authoritative. Does that make sense? Right, in place of Bible, you should have church. Church, right. I'll just put interpreted. By church. Right? And when you say the Bible interpreted by the church, ultimately the church is authoritative. Okay, so the church is authoritative because the church says so versus the Bible is interpreted because the Bible says so. Now what now the church is 
has way more writings than just what we find in scripture, right? And so they can say that, well, the church council did this, and the church council did this, and the Holy Spirit worked with the church to go ahead and accomplish this. But when you look at all of the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, it's a mess. It's a mess. I mean, it, honestly, like, what one count, you know, councils disagree with one another, canons disagree with one another, it's, it really is a mess. Got yeah. three popes. Yeah, three popes at one time. Yeah, there was a split. They all came together. Yeah, Jared? So in the Catholic Bible, do they have Second Timothy in it? They do. They have all the New, all the New Testament books are the same. But they don't acknowledge Second Timothy 3.16 and 17? They would, but there's always this caveat. The Bible is true insofar as correctly interpreted by the text. And there is kind of the issue where they would say that Scripture in that passage deals exclusively, let's say, with the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Or we'd be talking about how Scripture talks about the nature of Scripture itself. Yeah. Is there something in the Catholic books that contradict canon? Or like what, what is so special about those books that they feel like it's needed to be That's a very good question. Well, uh, let me go ahead and I'll kind of answer some bigger questions and then I'll answer that one in the middle of it, okay? So when you look at how do we know the Old Testament canon, you know, the, the 39 books of your Old Testament, because that's really the controversial part, right? The Catholic Church and the Protestant Church agrees on the 27 books of the New Testament. What we disagree on are the 39 books of the Old Testament. Should you add what's called the Apocrypha or not? And there's a couple passages that are pretty interesting. Number one is Luke 11:51, where Jesus says, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. You know, you basically have denied the scripture. Um, Abel is the first martyr in the Bible, right? Killed by Cain because of his jealousy of Abel's sacrifice. Zechariah, you find his death in Second Chronicles. And if you were to look at how of the ordering of the Old Testament scriptures, it began with Genesis and it ended with Chronicles. Okay, so Jesus is basically saying from Genesis to Revelation, you guys have always you know, denied God and, and assaulted his people. Okay, so that's one thing. So Jesus right there recognizes and um, the 39 books that the Jewish recognized, Jewish leaders recognized at that time. It's interesting, all the Pharisees, uh, they would affirm the 39 books of the Old Testament canon, right? That was a running understanding at that time. Um, now, later on, um, the Catholic Church um, added the extra books to the Old Testament during the Council of Trent. That is when those were officially recognized as canon. Now, the most influential Bible scholar of the first century is a man by the name of St. Jerome. You guys ever heard of Jerome? He translated the Bible into Latin. It's called the Vulgate. And that was the official Bible of the Roman Catholic Church you know, all the way until the, uh, I think, the Second Vatican um, Council. And he actually, when he translated it, made a very specific note that these apocryphal books, he translated it, but he made it very clear in his writings that he did not consider those parts of sacred scripture. 
So the question is, what caused this position change? Because that's what it was. Well, at the heart of the Revelation, do you guys know what the major issue was in the Revelation or in the Reformation? Is this concept of indulgence? They're going around saying that if you give money to the Roman Catholic Church, you can get an indulgence for one of your dead relatives. And in the Roman Catholic system of salvation, you basically die and then you go to a place called purgatory where you do a bunch of good works until you're elevated into the presence of Jesus. And you can help a relative out by giving an indulgence. And wouldn't you know what? These indulgences would pay for the construction of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Luther said, you know, smelled a rat, exposed it, and he challenged this whole idea of purgatory, praying for the dead and giving to the dead. He would say you can be justified right with God instantaneously so that when you die, you don't have to go through this transition process. And so in Tobit, there are some references to praying for the dead. And praying for the dead would imply, according to the Roman Catholic logic, that um, there is a place like purgatory where they can be, and you need to, to give to the church help to get them out of purgatory. To pray for the dead, you can also give for the dead. So there was kind of an agenda to reinforce the controversial theology at the time. Does that make sense? So it was expedient for them to find some biblical justification for it because Luther was just taking them to the woodshed about this whole thing with Sola Scriptura. Does that make sense? Yeah. Were those books, because um, like I saw in your next note here, you know, that Malachi seems to <coughs> close the Old Testament. So were those books later in time? Yeah, they were past Malachi. So they would have been written in maybe the second or third century. AD. And they're, they're good books. I mean, uh, Maccabees is about the Maccabean Revolt, where they, um, you know, a family basically led a revolution against the, uh, their Gentile oppressors. So they're not bad books. I mean, they're, they're very popular. They're inspirational. They're a rallying point. But even in Jesus' day, they never recognized them as scripture. They weren't in the same category. Yeah, Jared? So you were saying... They buy the indulgences mm -hmm. to get their family out of purgatory. Yep. So they don't trust in Jesus Christ. They say Jesus yeah. helps you, but he's not sufficient. Mm -hmm. So Jesus is necessary to save, but faith in Jesus is not sufficient to save. Because who are they praying to? Yeah, I mean, in this case, they'd pray to God for the dead in wisdom. But uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, there's kind of a whole new emphasis on praying to Mary, praying to the saints. That's... Mm -hmm you know, outside of what scripture pres prescribes. You know, and, and you know, what else is interesting too is uh, if you look at the Roman Catholic Church um, and how they list the Ten Commandments, they actually have a different set of Ten Commandments where they have break the coveting commandment into two separate commandments. You're not to covet your neighbor's wife and you're not to covet your neighbor's property. But then they fuse the first commandment of you shall worship no other gods and kind of fold in making idols and images into that first commandment, which is pretty telling, isn't it? Because what does the Roman Catholic do? They make images that you pray to, right? So that's the case where you kind of see this, the Bible correctly interpreted by the church that just kind of feeds into a lot of their, their doctrine and they, they adjust it to make it work. Does that make sense? 
So I think when you look at, let's say, the, the New Testament, there's many references where Paul and Peter, well, Paul recognizes Luke's authority in writing scripture, and Peter recognizes Paul's authority in writing scripture. There was an awareness that it was being written at the time, and there was a recognition by Jesus, and even think just the canon of scripture in general, where Malachi basically says scripture is stopping until the Messiah comes, to say that this is kind of a closed book right now. And then an angel appears to Zechariah in the temple, where Revelation is open again, and then at the end of Revelation, it says you're not to add to any more scripture, right? What's written is written until all of these end times events take place. So the Bible is self-contained. It does close itself off. And ultimately, um, you know, we are able to recognize Scripture. Remember what we talked about with the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit? Right? What does, what's the effect of that? Remember what the Holy Spirit does? You kind of use the example of the baby and the mother? Helps you recognize. The recognize. Yeah, maybe not understand, but at least recognize. And so there is a strong consensus where <coughs> apostolic authority, who helped write the New Testament, Jesus' recognition of the Old Testament, internal testimony of the Holy Spirit, the promise of God, gives us confidence that what we have right now is, is indeed God's revelation. So I guess we kind of talked a little bit about this, but I mean, do you need the Roman Catholic Church to validate the canon to tell us which books are in the Bible and which ones aren't. Yeah. On the, one of the things <clears throat> that we have seen is the danger of a church interpreting the Bible <clears throat> or a body of believers allowing the church to interpret the Bible if they don't know the Bible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they, everything has been, everything they've been taught they accept Mm-hmm. Without, because the church has has the authority, yeah. So then the Bible is not known. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how would the church justify that behavior? That you really can't interpret the Bible for yourself. How would they? How would they justify it? The Roman Catholic Church. Roman Catholic Church, or any any authoritative church. justify it because they're the authority. Because they're the authority, yeah. Yeah, and I think, well, you might lead to all these different kinds of interpretations, might have theological chaos, or um, like in the Roman Catholic Church, it was all in Latin, right? All the mass was in Latin, and nobody spoke Latin, right? So the simple couldn't necessarily understand it. That's why with the printing press, and like Luther translating the Bible from Greek and Hebrew into German so that the common man could understand it was revolutionary. It is, it is almost like a theological populist movement where people are, are reading the Bible for the first time and hearing what the priest said and said, wait, you know, wait a second here, right? And, and granted, you know, were, were there errors and false religions that came out of that time? Sure. Does that disprove the authority of Scripture? Well, it's Scripture that corrects those errors and reveals the false teachers. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Including the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah, exactly. 
Okay, making sense? I think, I think uh, when we think about like the authority of the church, we, we don't want to put them necessarily <coughs> at odds and like the, the, the scripture has the authority and the church doesn't. It's more that the church and scriptures have authority, but the church is underneath the authority of the scriptures. Mm-hmm. In so that there's a great many commands, you know, that the church would appeal to in scripture to, mm-hmm. to try and justify their, their own authority. But there's a difference between saying, well, like with Luther, you know, not he would say, if I'm convinced by Scripture, mm-hmm. uh, this position, right? Yeah. Putting the authority back on Scripture. Yeah. So if you're in an authoritative church and you disagree or don't understand teaching, you say, well, where does it find that in the Scripture? Yeah. Are they willing to go and talk and work in the Scripture, or is it just, yeah. you know, this is the right teaching? And yeah, the only reason why you and I have authority in this church is because Scripture gives it to us. Right. And we can't ju- we can't justify it by scripture, then it's not justified. Exactly. Jared, where do they come up with the blessing of salt to keep the demons away? The blessing of salt to keep the demons away? I can't really comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if all Catholics do that, and if they do do that, I don't know why they do that. So I'm going to have to just claim great ignorance there. Because that would be still life trust in Jesus. If that is what they do, then yes. I don't think salt is something that keeps demons away. Yes. Uh, so I'm just trying to kind of comprehend everything you're saying. And in your conclusions, you said that it seems to close the canon. And conclusion, historically, recognition seems to vindicate the canon. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like by using those words, seems to. Yeah. It almost uh, doesn't seem definite in my mind. Like, yeah. obviously, we've talked about all these, these proof points. Well, I, I'm making a logical argument, right? Okay. So, in that case, there seems to be, you know, Bible here, and kind of connecting the dots here. And so, that's why I use the word seems, because within Scripture, you don't have the official list of books. Um, there is an appeal to, to trying to put the Scriptures together, harmonizing it, and to a certain extent, tradition, um, I do think we can be certain about the Old Testament because that's what Jesus validates in Scripture. But even then you have to make a little bit of a, a jump. But the New Testament is not really up for debate. Um, are there other books potentially out there? Like Jesus obviously said more than anything, anyone <coughs> can contain. We know there's other revelation floating around that in God's providence is what he preserved for us. And all the other candidates for this might be a book of the Bible when they're introduced. They're just really weird books. Mm-hmm. Really weird books. Like I think it's the Gospel of Thomas where you, you have a talking cross. Um, you have heads stretching all the way into heaven. I mean, it's just a weird book that, that doesn't seem Childhood very Jesus doing miracles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think, I think by using the word seems, right, there you are. Um, by using the word seems, though, that is actually preserving the idea that scripture's an authority over us and we don't get to say, we know for sure, these are the 27 books of the New Testament and um, you know we can be so certain, just as certain as we are that Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, we can. Yeah. And using that language is actually being careful to preserve our humility under the authority of scripture and under even the authority of the Holy Spirit yeah. to show and convict and make clear. I think the appeal of the Catholic Church 
And I think why a lot of people, I think what we're finding is a lot of really conservative people, not just Christians, but conservative um, in general, they like the certainty that the Roman Catholic Church gives you. They, I've seen many people who kind of move from the Bible to, well, the Bible doesn't speak about all these issues, so I'll do the fallback of the Westminster Confession. And, you know, that gives me a fuller understanding and a more certain understanding of what the scripture teaches, right? And then from there, they'll jump to the Roman Catholic Catechism because they basically have a rule about everything, right? But even within that, if you were to look at all of the accounts, I mean, it is, it's a mess. It's hard to get it all sorted out. So I think by using the word seems, thank you for supporting me in that. It uh, uh, just shows this is how certain we can be. And, and ultimately, Scripture is the authority. And if somebody shows me from Scripture that we need to be more open to other books of the Bible, then I would be willing to listen. But you have to argue it on the terms. You know, the fight has to be had in Scripture. Yeah, Judy. I may be jumping down a different rabbit trail, but... What about the Mormon church and some of those things that they teach? I have a friend who is uh -huh. very Mormon, and she's always quoting, the bishop says, the bishop says. Uh -huh. um, like, whatever the bishop says is written in stone because the bishop has yeah. said. It's not the Bible says, the yeah. bishop has said. Yeah, that's a very interesting. It is relevant. We're not jumping down a different rabbit hole. I'm glad you asked. Um, I love Mormons. You know, they are some of the sweetest, nicest people. You know, I know. Some of them can be. Some of them can be, right? But ultimately, uh, Mormon revelation is really based off of a central prophet. So the first prophet president was Joseph Smith, he gave way to Brigham Young, and he kind of go on down the line from there. And they do have books of official revelation, the Book of Mormon, uh, something called Doctrines and Covenants, that is like different speeches that different early presidents gave us in a tome. Uh, the Pearl of Great Price, which is some wisdom given by um, Joseph Smith, and then you have the Bible, when it's correctly interpreted by the Book of Mormon. And the Book of Mormon is kind of a narrative of uh, Jewish settlers who got on a boat across the Atlantic and settled in the Americas and then had a great war and the last survivor of the good side buried these golden plates in upstate New York that were written in reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics. An angel <laughs> appeared to Joseph Smith, he found them and then he translated them into the Book of Mormon. And what's really interesting about the Book of Mormon, remember how we talked about systematic theology, which is taking all the truths of the Bible and then coalescing it into like a central standard um, teaching? And I think a, a guy, his last name is McConkie, but he wrote a, a book called Mormon Doctrine, where he tried to harmonize and synthesize all of the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and that was in the 70s. But since then, a lot of the teachings have changed. Uh, one of the major ones is they would teach that um, since the good people in the early Americas were white and delightsome, if you were black, you had to be reincarnated into a white person 
And then you can work your way up to becoming you know, a god of your own planet. Well, they had a, a change of heart where there was a new revelation by the president that said that's no longer required. Now when that happens, you're basically able to add to revelation. And this whole project of making sure that, that it can be synthesized and harmonized because all truth is God's truth and God gets it right the first time every time, that's really shifted away from that where they really can't do that anymore. And so what's gonna be really interesting to watch is um, being that you have a president up there and he's making all these pronouncements, it's not outside the realm of possibility that within our lifetime, the Mormon church could be gay affirming. Even though their whole religion is kind of built on the concept of the family. And so when he says the bishop says, the bishop says, ultimately for the Mormon, the president can say whatever he wants and they can kind of force change that reading into scripture and then what do you know, they have a, they have a new doctrine. So yeah, it's, um, it's a church that's becoming more mystical because it's not as doctrinal. I think that, I was just gonna add, I think that we all can run that risk whenever we have a, a uh, pastor or teacher. If, if they seem to have a long track, track record, it can shift suddenly to, well they said this is what the scripture said, but that must be what it says. And it, Pastor Dave that? said this. Is that what you're saying? What's that? <laughs> 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 and so, I was, <laughs> so you become, um, you, you kind of shortcut thinking through the scriptures yeah. yourself, and you can kind of elevate popular teachers and preachers above their role in the church. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Somebody had a hand raised. Amy, we're going to say something. No, you said mystical, and I was mystical. No, you're, <laughs> you're doing the hand gestures for me. Yeah. You know, back to the Catholic Church, I was just thinking about having studied the latest apologetics pamphlet they put out. And their number one attack on the Protestant Church is the number of Protestant denominations there are. And it really makes, doesn't make any sense to me, really, that that's an attack, because that's really man's problem, mm -hmm. not the church's problem. Yeah. And all the problems, it, it kind of comes, you know, I kind of compare it to the Humane Society here, you know, as a vet. You know, how come we have 50 competing, you know, mm -hmm. groups for the salvation of animals, you know? Mm -hmm. It's because we have, man's got the problem. Yeah. And it really came to me the other day when I was reading We've been studying together the uh, Old Testament, you know, doing the Bible reading every day. And it's really, it would be easy to get confused mm -hmm. when you read something that a man can have relations with a virgin, and if he decides not to marry her, he just needs to pay her dad. You know, mm -hmm. so, you know, God said there was a lot of very specific things like man can, you know, adultery is wrong. So mm -hmm. the Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. So why would that be okay? Well, it's yeah. because man was so corrupt that yeah. he didn't have the death penalty for everything. He had a way for you to get yeah. out of it. So anymore, I just say, well, that's man's problem with God. It's not God's problem. It's not the Scripture's problem. Yeah. We have 5,500 different denominations. Yeah. But that's the number one thing that the Roman Catholic Church will come after you with. 
They'll, yeah. The first thing they'll mention is the number of denominations we have. Yeah. And it's not a problem with the Bible. It's a problem with man interpreting mm -hmm. the Bible. Yeah. And then somewhere, like Mormonism, when you're staring at a seer stone in the hat and coming up with the scriptures <coughs> for this. <coughs> yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, I mean, with the Roman Catholic Church, um, you look at the last two, well, the current Pope, Pope Francis, and Pope Benedict, they couldn't be more different. No. I mean, there's open disagreement. <coughs> the one thing that they both have in common is a commitment to the papacy and the authority of the Roman Catholic Church. But within that, I mean, there's all kinds of splinters, um, this maneuvering. It's not a united church. You know, but there is this institution that all these parties are seeking to, to control, and that's why it's an inherently political organization. Where I think that even interferes with the mission. Yeah. Other thoughts? All right. Well, I'll introduce the next topic, which is the topic of inerrancy. Okay, and. Um, Because so in recent years, modern scholarship has severely questioned the accuracy of the scriptures. This has led some evangelical theologians to concede that errors in to concede errors in the Bible with regards to dating, creation, etc. Yet they're still yet they still maintain their evangelical faith by claiming that the Bible is infallible. In other words, while it may have errors, it speaks with perfect authority on matters of faith and practice. So if someone affirms this position, what must they believe about the Bible and what must it contain? If you believe in, let's say, infallibility versus inerrancy. If you believe in infallibility, what do you believe about the Bible implicitly? That it can't fail. They, yeah, they believe it can't fail, but there's another element because both in, inerrancy believes that too. If you believe in infallibility and not inerrancy, what do you believe about the Bible? Do you define infallibility? Infallibility is the belief that the Bible is true when it speaks about faith and practice. But it doesn't necessarily have to be true about history, chronology, and other things. Right, what's the assumption? There are errors. There are errors in the Bible, right? And so uh, it's kind of like a damage control, right? Okay, so there's errors here, but when it comes to faith and practice, we know that's always true there. What do you think about that position? Do you see any? That's not our position, but are there holes in it? What do you see? Now, where would you draw the line? Yeah. Yeah. Where do you draw the line? And who draws the line? Who draws the line? <laughs> right. And a lot of this, um, you know, I've Scott and I, when we taught, when looking at the scripture, you have the the issue of posture, right? where you have, sorry, right, the authority is God over man, right? 
And how does God express his authority and reveal his authority? Right? You have God reveals himself through the Bible that positions itself over man. Right? That would be the right chain of command. When you talk about infallibility, who discovers and discerns the errors? Right? There's a rule reversal where you have man stands in judgment over the Bible, and then man sifts it to get the true Bible. Does that make sense? And so that's really the, uh, the issue that we have. And so when you, when you talk about inerrancy, I think maybe the better term, and the better proof for it is uh, authority, right? Yeah. I mean, then you could put one more arrow that the goal is to reverse it, so then that puts God underneath it, or somewhere yeah. underneath man. So we have, we, have a, a, we have a filtered version of God. And so, granted, slippery slope arguments are not the best arguments, but I think what is a compelling argument is, you know, who is man to edit the contents of, of Scripture, okay? So we'll talk more in depth about that next week, and I think this will be our last set. We should be able to finish it all next week. We will finish it all next week. And then after that, uh, Scott will be talking about the doctrine of God. All right, Scott, you ready? Yeah, it's the easy one. Easy. I gave you the easy one. Yeah. So I come from a Methodist background. Okay. One of the most glaring examples of that right now is what the Methodist Church is doing with the Bible and pronouns. Yeah. They've changed the pronouns in the Bible to even God is them. So there is there is this whole idea of and then there is a there is a tendency to make God feminine. There's this whole movement of the politically correct Bible that you read. Yeah. So that's, the, that's a perfect example of that, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's filt man filtering the Bible to give us the true Bible. So Which that's then why. gives us the true God. Right. The true God. And then you have true Bible, red letter Christians here, right? Which is a way of saying everything, only the sayings of Jesus matter. And really only the ones that we like. Yeah, yeah. except for the ones where he affirms the rest of the Bible. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. So that's why, that's why inerrancy is a real has been a real battleground and continues to kind of be so. So let me go ahead and pray and let you guys go. Well, Father, I do thank you for these brothers and sisters and just the insight that they bring. And I pray that all of us will have a real fresh appreciation for Scripture, its authority, and its clarity. Uh, we pray that as we sing about the truths we learn in the Scripture in the next service, as we hear from the Scripture, that you will just speak powerfully to us and that we will be shaped and changed by it. In Christ's name, amen.